bangly bang. On the Emperor Podcast this week, we go full Jack Walsh. We got the Duke. We got the Duke. Yes, Winston Duke pops by for a chat about us. It felt like a roller coaster where you were all saying we're buckled in for this group experience. <laughs> and you know you're not going to die, but it doesn't stop you from <laughs> acting as if you are anyway, you know, yeah. and enjoying it. Plus, we talked to Ray Fiennes, director and star of The White Crow, and his leading man, Oleg Efenko, and Oleg's interpreter. Of course, I knew him from Harry Potter um, films. But uh, when I met him, I said, well, I actually saw him in James Bond yesterday. All that and more on the movie podcast that really needs to brush up on its Ukrainian. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, Helen O'Hara is away showing a group of American teenagers the time of their lives. So we'll just have to soldier on with a veritable plateful of sausage. For my two colleagues of such lethal cunning this week are men, both of whom have had to endure my new obsession in the office, Martin Brennan, the Irish Alan Partridge lookalike who cropped up at the end of this week's This Time. Join me in saying, ah, to Empire's very own George Harrison lookalike, John Nugent. Who the hell is that? And then join me in saying, who the hell is that? To Empire's shit Jason Statham, James Dyer. Why do you insist on inflicting comedy upon me? It's just... It's just... Is, that what I, uh, is that what I'm doing? Yeah. Inflicting comedy upon you? How yeah. would you tell? How would you know? Well, this is... Uh, see, it's funny that you bring up this episode of Alan Partridge. This, of course, nicely leads into a sneak preview of the new pilot TV oh, podcast. No, I'm... I'm Whereupon, no, 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 no. I've got... Whereupon, you, you, you've got your own section later in the show. <laughs> just give us this. No, no but I was just going to say, are you and Nick sat down and made me watch... Made me watch the last five minutes of that uh, this time with Alan Partridge, where he what's the chap's name? Martin Brennan. When he becomes Martin Brennan and who the hell is that? <laughs> and sings about the IRA, and that is a comedy beat that I'm going to dissect it is live not... on the Pilot TV podcast. Oh my god! Oh, well, if, yeah. that, if that's not an incentive to listen, yeah. then I don't know what is. <laughs> Specifically, it's going to be Boyd and Terry explaining why it's funny and me failing to understand. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. God, if anyone can ruin comedy, it's you. Right, thanks, John. That means a lot to me. It's an amazing bit, though, Jimbo. It's amazing. And uh, since you don't appear to be keen on inviting us on your little podcast to discuss that, I'm going to discuss it very, very quickly now. If you haven't seen it, it's the fourth episode of This Time with Alan Partridge, which is on BBC One at the moment. If you want to hear us talk more about Alan Partridge, we have a special Alan Partridge special with Neil and Rob Gibbons, the Devisers, co-creators and co-devisers of that show, along with Steve Coogan. And it's an amazing bit where Alan Partridge is essentially confronted with his own Irish doppelganger, who is a, an Irish farmer called Martin Brennan. And everything about this character, I'm obsessed with this character. It's incredible. The look of the character, the voice of the character. I grew up knowing people like Martin mm. Brennan. It's pretty <laughs> much spot on. I like to think that you're my own <laughs> Irish doppelganger. But I have, for the time being... Hair. So, how <laughs> that is that true. Work? That is true. You're my bifollicle doppelganger, and I'm smaller and more rotund. You know, I mean, I never said you were a particularly good one. I'm in in saying, the same way that Danny know. DeVito is the doppelganger of Arnold yes, Schwarzenegger. Yes, that's <laughs> it. Yes, you are the Danny DeVito to my arm. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> how come you like twins? Yeah, but you look at that Alan Partridge segment. And it's genius, and you just sit there stony-faced. It was like fascinating, a- actually, watching James's face, watching the Alan Partridge, because it was like... Watch it, watching me, watching it. Yeah. The lesser-known Alan Partridge you show. Had, you had <laughs> you had, your hand on your chin, like you were studying it, like like you were an alien. You, this is the first time you'd seen humans converse. I know yeah. now why you laugh, but <laughs> yeah. it is something I could never do. 
It's from I don't understand you. I I just don't. There's, I don't there's a little bit you, of John. there's a little bit of willful obstinance about the whole <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, of course. There's a little bit of I am not going to laugh at this whatsoever. Yeah. But, but sometimes it can be terrible. If you show someone something that you really truly desperately love mm. and they don't get it. That can be heart-wrenching. Oh yeah. I often watch films uh, and I'm spend half of the film like looking to my side just making sure that the person <laughs> is enjoying, you know, just 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 sort of did watching reactions bit? let's just rewind the last 10 minutes just to make sure you got it yeah i once i once showed uh listeners to the podcast i may even have said this i only have four stories and i'm just basically repeating them over the course of <laughs> seven and a half years but people will know who listen to the podcast regularly that i love top secret what do you think about top secret jimbo i've never watched it don't watch it no it's I one of the greatest movies ever well, made you would hate it we were discussing like boyd was giving me shit for this he was trying to, as you have done many times, trying to delve into the psychopathy behind my lack of comedic interest. I've and never he was heard it pronounced that way before. Well, you know, I which like is to... quite a, psycho- a psychopathic. <laughs> that is, way it's a psychopathic psycho- way of pronouncing psycho- it. Psychopathic he, um, way of saying it. Yeah. He was saying to me, "Well, obviously, you find airplane funny, don't you?" And I was like, "Well, no, no, I don't. Sorry, it's a lost cause." Uh, producer Jane's in the studio this week. Uh, Jane, is there any way you can just cut James out of the podcast entirely? <laughs> Just Repla- have a bit of dead air. Replace me with a laugh track. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> that would be incredible. But anyway, so uh, Top Secret is a film I love, I love, I love, I love, I love, I love. And I was living with two people in 2008, I want to say. And it turned out neither of them had seen Top Secret. So I said, oh my God, you guys are in for a treat. And I sat down, I put on one of the funniest movies ever made. It has a joke about every 35 seconds and... They didn't laugh once. And it was one of the most uncomfortable viewing experiences of my life because I loved it. It was like the 20th time I'd seen it, something like that, and I was still laughing at all the jokes, still getting it. And I would look across them and they were just like, Who the hell is that? What the hell is that? Do you have their contact details? These feel like people that I want to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, should we have a question? Sure. Hit yeah. me with it. Yeah, okay. So the question, this is a good question this week. Not to imply that all the questions are usually bad. They're not. They're, they're good. But this one comes from at RoddersJ04 on the Twitter machines. And I didn't write down your real name. Sorry about that. If you could make an interconnected universe, so like I guess the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the Dark Universe, out of any director's works, who would you choose and which characters would you love to see meet up the most? Now, this is the sort of question that I think you could put hours and hours of preparation into. <laughs> if, for example, I sent you the question on Monday, which I did, and you read it on Monday, which you did, and sure. you've been spending all week preparing for this, guys? Why not? Let's go with that. Sure. Yep. All right. Yep. Okay. Jimbo. I would say, what would I say? Maybe the <laughs> McTiernan verse. I'd go for the McTiernan verse because then you'd have like a diehard film where Dutch Schaefer turns up with a minigun and just like kills all the terrorists. That'd be quite fun. And then, uh, you know, and then Sean Connery's Medicine Man would kind of pop up and, you know, why? Administer, no, no, no. Why would Sean, first aid. Why would Sean uh, Connery's Medicine Man? And then they all play rollerball and, uh, and you know, find the 13th <laughs> Warrior. I don't know. I mean, you, you're running out of films are pretty, very quickly. Yeah, you know, yeah. he has a limited ball, ball, yeah. ball. But, uh, yeah, you know, I could roll with that. Roll yeah. their ball. I could see that. John McClane teaming up with, with Dutch. Yeah. Uh, do you know um, Dutch's name, according to the Alan. Predator novelization, is Alan. Yeah, it's Alan, Alan. Schaefer. Yeah, Alan, Alan Schaefer. Alan Schaefer. Where did Dutch come from? Because he's Dutch. But he's not Dutch. He's, he's Austrian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, I think that's... His character is supposed to be Dutch, yeah. 
So they call him Dutch, but his name is Alan. Big Al Schaefer. So James has gone for a space. James has gone for the director of his favourite movie of all time. Is it your favourite movie of all time? No, Die my favourite movie of all time is Alien. So the Cameron verse would be my second stop on this particular trip. Okay, so say. you're really going far down your list of yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I could say like the Richard Curtis verse, but basically they all take place in the same universe anyway, so it kind of makes no difference. It's just that a lot of people in his verse that look like Hugh Grant. Brothers. Yeah. It's like three identical strangers. That's right. One becomes Prime Minister, another one gets married to an American, and the other one meets Julia Roberts. Did anyone see the comic relief thing? Yes, good. indeed. Uh, one red nose day in a wedding. And was it good? Um, John. No. Who is your <laughs> interconnected universe? Uh, what, my, what is your interconnected universe? My first thought for this question was Tarantino. Yeah. Um, because that's sort of been... <laughs> he's already done it. Sort of been, like, talked about anyway. Like, yep. you know, there's all sorts of little Easter eggs he puts in there. And, he, you know, the Vega brothers. He, I mean, he talked about writing a film at one point with, with, mm, that's right. with Vincent Vega and the other Vega. Mm-hmm. Um, Leaving Las Vega. And I think it'd be really cool just to have, like, an Avengers-style, <laughs> you know, get the bride <laughs> and Dr. King and, you know, Dr. all... Dr. King Schultz, Dr. yeah. Dr. King Schultz. Be amazing. Get all of like his big Django, get all the action hisses to team up and, I don't know, mm. kill Thanos or something. That'd be fun. Sure. Um, Igma Bowman. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's gone. He's, <laughs> get oh, hang, the, on. Uh... hang on a second. We're going highbrow. We're going highbrow. Yep. Get Death to team up with Fanny and Alexander. <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> that would be amazing. I'm on board. Anything else? Where's Anderson? How about Where's Anderson? You have a Tweed Avengers. There's only so much whimsy I can have in my life. But I mean, like, it would be the ultimate whimsy. I feel like, you know, there are certain directors who feel like every film is sort of in the same universe anyway. Yeah. They sort of make the same film mm. um, over and over. Or, yeah. you know, there'd be like 20 Bill Murrays. Yeah. So I just want to interrogate the question a little bit more now then. So is this a... Are we making a separate film? Is this a film? So these films exist. So let's say, for example, we'll we'll take your Wes Anderson. So are you making the Royal Tenenbaums and you just, but you make a different film and then you drop Steve Sisu into it or you bring Ray Fiennes somehow, there's time travel, jiggery pokery from the Grand Budapest Hotel and you drop him into the movie. Yeah. Is that what works? Or is this just a universe? Does this universe just exist outside our universe? A parallel universe where all these characters live and they just interact and they just pass each other on the way to the shops. My interpretation is the coolest way to do it is you do an Avengers team up, right? You get some sort of scenario, some sort of time vortex where you bring together characters from all of those films into one film and they all interact and you have the joy of seeing these characters. Mm -hmm. That's one of the best things about Avengers, right? Is seeing these disparate characters interact and Wouldn't know. spark off each other. I haven't seen it. You you should watch it, Chris. You'd like it. It's a it. kid's film. It's <laughs> um yeah. So, you know, that'd be yeah. great, wouldn't it? Like to have to, I'd love to see Dutch and McLean yeah. swapping swapping rise cracks. <laughs> that'd be, be cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna say Hitchcock. Oh, okay. Hitchcock would be amazing. A, because there's loads and loads of films to choose from, but wouldn't you love a scene where Norman Bates, <laughs> you know, Roger Thornhill from North by Northwest has just escaped the crop duster <laughs> and he's a bit he's a bit dusty he's a bit disheveled and he he decides to go to check into a motel and go for a shower and he checks into the Bates Motel nice and nice. that'd be cool nice wouldn't that be cool and then dies and then dies horribly <laughs> and then you get James Stewart from Vertigo who has to come in and kind of investigate the the murder but he goes a bit doolally so then James Stewart from <laughs> <laughs> Numerous Hitchcock films comes in and investigates his own murder, 
and then Cary Grant comes in from an oh my god that's yeah. a, that's a yeah, beautiful yeah. thing like if you do it right you could have like four Jimmy Stewart's running around four Cary Grants you could have if you did the Tarantino first right and of course the Tarantino first is connected to an extent as we as we discussed you could have eight different Sam Jacksons yeah running around that'd be cool it'd be like Time Cop but on a grand scale. So what would happen if all these Sam Jacksons got into a room? What would happen if all these Tim Roths got into a room and they touched? Not in a sex way, but just like they touched. Would they explode? I don't know. These are the big questions. <laughs> this has turned into a Brian Cox podcast, hasn't it? <laughs> What's happening? What about the Coen Brothers multiverse? Oh, now you're There's talking. There's a lot of good characters there. You could you could have Marge from mm-hmm. Fargo investigating oh. a crime. Oh my god! With, with the assistance with, of with the, the dude. The, yeah. Oh my god. They could be hunting down Anton Chigurh from uh, from no country. no country for Old Men. Yeah. Oh my god, that would be so amazing. Yeah, yeah. And Lewin Davis just sings some songs, you know, <laughs> and then just they to go, keep them going. Then they go bowling. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah, that'd be great. It doesn't sound like a lot of incident in this film, to be honest, but I'd just be happy to watch these characters hang out. Like, my dream... You know, I'm sorry, I, I'm talking about this on the Empire podcast and not the... Um, let me just look it up here again. The Pilot, Pilot TV? Pilot yes, TV podcast? Yes, that's on. But my dream scenario would be, like, all the great TV detectives getting together for a huge... In fact, you can make it a movie because it would be incredible. So someone dies, and then Columbo, Jessica Fletcher, Magnum... And um, Luther, I don't know. I'm not sure. I I like Luther, but I don't see him as one of the great detectives. Maybe. Sherlock. Does I mean, they, no. Do no. any of your detectives exist beyond the sort of eighties? Yes, of course they do. I was just about to say someone. Go on, Luther. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you got Columbo, uh-huh. Grissom, because you need someone to do the the pathology, or as you might say, the pathology, <laughs> the psychopathy. <laughs> Um, so you get Columbo, Grissom, House, because they they were killed with poison. And it was lupus. It was lupus. Lupus <laughs> did it in the end. Jessica Fletcher, Luther, and Mulder and Scully. Why not? And they all come together to investigate this crime. But it turns out that... Oh, no, Frank from Blue Bloods. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It, it, it ends with a climactic dinner table scene where they discuss the... Uh... They discuss the the murder while the grandfather serves some chicken. Oh god, maybe. He, oh yes. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got it. I've got it. He's the one who's killed. He's the one who's killed. Oh please God. The grandfather from Blue Bloods has died, mysteriously died, stabbed, then shot, then poisoned, then blown up, then immolated. The whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle, and everyone gets together. Frank from Blue Bloods, Columbo, Grissom, House, Jessica Fletcher, Luther. They all get together and they have a big old party, and that's the end of the film, and everyone goes home. <laughs> And that's the answer to that question. And if you want your question to be read on the Empire Podcast wow. and treat it with the respect it deserves, then you can get in touch with us via a number of methods. We're on Twitter, of course, as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast, or chances are we won't see it. You can also Facebook us, where we're Empire Magazine. We never check it, but it's nice <laughs> to know that that option is available to you. Yeah. And you can also email us, which we do check, podcast at empireonline.co. Time now for our first guest, or should I say, guests. You know Ray Fiennes, or Ralph Fiennes, as an actor, of course, but he's also a dab hand behind the camera as a director. He returns for a third outing wielding the megaphone in this week's The White Crow, which tells the story of how the legendary ballet dancer Rudolf Nureyev defected to the West. Nureyev is played in the film by Ukrainian actor Oleg Ivenko, and we sent 
Nick Dissemblian, along to talk to them for the podcast, we discovered that Oleg had a translator with him. So you're going to hear a little bit of Oleg in this interview and a lot of his translator. Seems fair? Seems fair. Enjoy. We are very happy to have Ray Fines and Oleg Ivanko on the Empire podcast today. How are you guys? Good, thank you. How are you? Not bad, thanks. Good. Yeah, we're having a nice time in the Dorchester. Good. Um, <laughs> Rafe, this is your third film as director. Did yes. you ever think you would make a, a film about ballet? And is that a terrifying prospect? Well, at times, if I thought it was just a film about ballet, I probably would have been too scared to have made it. But I was drawn to it, n- not because of ballet, essentially, but because of the spirit and the hungry, ferocious desire within the young Rudolf Nureyev to realise himself as an artist. And that story of a childhood of poverty, um, willing himself to get a place in the Leningrad Ballet Academy and finally on tour in France where he makes the decision to defect, that story just really moved me. So the ballet came with it, and I now have an appreciation of ballet, but I have to confess that it was a scary notion to film ballet, which is a very particular skill, I think. As you say, it's this character study of this incredible Mm. personality, Mm. who I I read being described as the Brando of ballet, I think, in the New York Times (laughs) piece. Um, What was it like to find the guy to play play him? Oleg, playing Yuriev. Well, it was a tough proposal. I think I decided quite early on that for various practical financial reasons it would be more efficient and effective if I had a dancer who would give me all the things a dancer has in terms of their physicality, their aptitude, their ability to perform the dances, who could act. So I could ask for a performance from the body of a dancer who could dance. It seemed that would be the best of every world. So we we initiated a big casting sweep through the Russian-speaking ballet world. Oleg quite quickly was on the radar he was told that I didn't like him first. That's not quite true. I actually thought he was a, a possible candidate, but I needed to see other people first. And then finally he was on the shortlist of people that we screen tested. And I saw his test and had a very strong feeling that he was the man who could do it. And Oleg, is it true that you got an email inviting you to audition, but you thought it was spam and you deleted it? Yes, it was Yes, so that's how it happened. There is a social uh, network. I received a message, and uh, it's not the social uh, network you would expect uh, serious business proposals to come from. Uh, you often get uh, all kind of spam. So uh, when you get a message like this, you look at it and delete. And uh, what did you know of Rafe? Had you seen him in many films? Of course, I knew him from Harry Potter um, films. But uh, actually, uh, just before the screen test, I watched uh, the James Bond. Uh, when I met him, I said, well, I actually saw you in James Bond yesterday. There we go. You can't say that to everyone. <laughs> Rafe, did you look at other ballet films? Did you look at, you know, The Red Shoes? Is, I looked at The one. Red Shoes, yes. I, I looked at a number of ballet films and ballet documentaries. To be honest, I, I, there's an overload of information. I, I think I, I learnt the hard way, possibly, which was... Well, I had ideas about how to shoot the ballet, and um, some of them I got wrong. I mean, I think I sort of wanted to challenge the idea that you needed to see all the body in the frame. I was sort of wrong. I think you can cut in, of course, but really we see the whole body making the shape as it turns or jumps or leaps or... And the moment you come in, it can work, but not for very long, because the ballet dancer is making a particular shape, and it's to be seen precisely by the audience. If you go around behind that shape, 
it's not as pleasing. I mean, you can do it, but quickly when I was putting the ballet sequences together, Johan Koburg, who helped me with the choreography and guiding Oleg, said, you see, that isn't, to my eye, that's not so good. This is the front. This is the bit I'm, uh, you're meant to see. And, and I sort of thought, well, I could be a bit more rebellious and go, well, I want to see behind. But actually, I thought, no, I'm telling the story of why this person is great, because it's this mode of expression that I'm asking the audience to see that he did very well. If I sort of sub- try to subvert it, I'm not actually showing what Nureyev... It sort of seemed counterproductive, is what I'm trying to say. Right. And is it true that you studied yourself? A little bit, but I had like ten lessons just to know what what ballet is asking of the body. I mean, I did very, very, very basic ballet exercises with a lovely guy called Bennett Gartside at, at the Royal Ballet, who was extremely patient and generous. But I felt I got a tiny glimpse into the sort of unusual way that the body is being asked to move and the way it's been asked to communicate in, in ballet. Yeah. And like, were you able, as somebody with ballet background, were you able to offer any advice or tips on the... No, no... You could see that um, he was enjoying uh, himself when he was practicing and training uh, ballet. I even have a photo where he stands in a pose, and uh, he's um, uh, very good and very convincing. Rafe, this was a book that kind of inspired you. Uh, you read it quite a while ago. Um, well, yeah, the book was the initial inspiration, Julie Kavanagh's biography, sure. But also, I mean, the, the inspiration continued as I watched... Um, documentaries and 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 read other books and and actually what was particularly interesting was meeting the people who some people who who's still alive who knew Rudy some friends in St Petersburg and the real Clara Son who is still alive and also Pierre Lacotte and a number of people who knew him and that was that was that just added fuel to the what you call the the inspiration yeah I mean obviously you kind of focus on the first half of his life mm. after he goes to America he has an amazing kind of experience as well. He's mm. hanging out with Marlon Dietrich and Mick Jagger. And mm. would you be interested in? in well, to be honest, I find that interesting as a sort of account of social calendar of a famous person. But I actually find it quite boring as a dramatic proposal. I don't, I don't know where the drama is in it. An anecdote about a night out with Marlene is interesting. The famous story of Margot Fontaine himself getting arrested for having drugs on themselves in San Francisco is is interesting. And there might be some material in the. Difficult years running the Paris Opera, and of course he became ill with AIDS-related diseases. There's something painfully dramatic and interesting, possibly, in his return to Russia, finally, to visit his dying mother in, I think, 1987. And he's very sick, or the beginnings of sickness, and continuing to dance and trying to keep himself active. Um, And that it's sad, of course. It's it's tragic, but it's his defiance, even going in, into the twilight, is also very moving. Mm. You build up to this incredible set piece in the airport. Mm. Um, how hard was it to recreate that kind of historic um, event? And it was well. It's one of the one of the leading sort of excitements about the story was this what I felt was the sort of thriller-like climax and moment by moment, second by second account of what actually happened there which is quite well re- remembered by Clara Saint, Pierre Lacotte and other people. And Sibella, who was the production designer, on a soundstage outside Belgrade, built the main atrium of Le Bourget, which we had visited outside Paris. You can visit it now, it's an, air- an aircraft museum. So the principal architectural shape and details is, is very close to Le Bourget. Um, and I, we did exhaustive rehearsals mapping out 
here in Yurev arrives, and this is what happens. He's led here to the bar, and then Sergeyev interrupts him, and this is where the dancers are being ushered through to get on the plane. And just the spatial, the spatial choreography was something I was, was very important to get right. But I had done storyboard. Um, with the storyboard artist, I had worked in detail about it, so I had sort of paced up and down my kitchen, mapping out the Le Bourget sequence for a long time before. So I, um, I suppose I had it had it quite clearly marked out in my head. But of course, what you have in your head is different, and then you shoot, and there's extras and camera angles and lighting issues, and so it was a big challenge. And we had to we had to actually add two more days to our schedule to complete it. And Oleg, was that? Uh the most intimidating sequence for you? Uh, yes, we spent uh, four days shooting this uh, uh, particular scene and it was challenging, it was uh, difficult because I had to uh, keep myself in the same state for four days. Rafe was uh, constantly telling me, keep on uh, with this uh, state, with this feeling, dig deeper, uh, keep it inside, keep it inside. <laughs> Um, Rafe, this is your third film as director. Mm. I mean, I've read a few interviews where you've used the word stress. Has it become a less stressful <laughs> experience day to day? I shouldn't keep going on about the stress. <laughs> <It> just, <laughs> um, yes, th- the truth is going in was stressful because there were financial concerns. But there were many days where I was blessed with working with extraordinary actors and Oleg and, and wonderful Chulpan Khamaltov, a great, great, great Russian actress who plays my wife, and Alexei Marosov who plays the minder, what is thrilling is when an actor comes and they are suddenly giving you all these possibilities and suddenly this sort of, it's like the th- it lifts because up until then it's ideas and you do realise how, I mean you can have the best lighting and the best production design but it's the face of the actor that w- is giving you the spirit and that's exciting and it leads you to have ideas and I love building on, I, I love, I think my favourite part is nurturing or guiding an actor to, to, to find more and I'm finding more you know together we is there more what happens if you play it like this or that was good and just and that feels in a great way really creative and exploratory if that's your favorite part what's the least favorite part it's simply the, the sort of working towards the film and going through days as you work of not not knowing that it's actually going to happen and I think it's the case with a lot of independent films that a lot of productions begin with not all of their finance in place but it's often a gamble that's worth taking because the little shortfall can be made up because once people know you're preparing and re-employing people and it's a reality it does something to the to investors or finance people they go okay so there's there's actually a lot of goodwill in terms of there are people out there who nervous about investing but they sort of there's sort of point when they go well that film I like that film they're making that film I will come in or I there, there's interesting goodwill from people who want to put money into films but it's a no it's a gamble it's a big risk I can't think of anything else I don't I really hate I mean there's nothing worse off than a slow set for some frustrating reason you can't move forward but those are that's just the norm for a film set okay um, Hmm. And we just had the 25th uh, anniversary celebration of Schindler's List. Yes. I saw that Liam was at the premiere yes. uh, for your film. Yes. Did you guys talk about it at all? Is that a film you've revisited lately? Sadly, I couldn't make the 25th anniversary screening because I was doing my final mix. Right. That was back last April, I think, and I couldn't make it. But no, we do often talk about it. I mean, actually, no, we don't often talk about it, but I mean, it comes up in conversation. 
Um, but it was a great, that was an amazing filmmaking time, making Schindler's List. I think everyone who was involved on that film, it was the energy coming from Stephen was something extraordinary. It was sort of the sense of purpose and devotion and as if his life depended on it. And it was, I always think of that energy of that film set on when, especially the, couple, the few times I've been behind the camera was to remember how he led that crew by his, the sort of vitality of his determination to make it was exciting. Do you have one particular memory of that shoot that has kind of lodged in your head? Well, the one that always moves me is the fact that on in a winter's day in Krakow in Poland, there was the old Jewish quarter, not to be confused with the ghetto, the quarter, the traditional Jewish quarter, where there was a, a, a piazza, a plaza, an open space in which there was, we had already identified as a crew, a very welcoming, lovely old Jewish cafe which, you know, had documents and books and it certainly had literature relating to the Holocaust. And um, the first time I went to Krakow, I remember we had a costume fitting with our trailers were near this cafe. And I remember that Ben Kingsley in a very sort of rather drab brown suit with a yellow armband with the Star of David on it and myself in an SS officer's coat, our costumes, walked a little bit away from our trailers, came across this cafe and this lady welcomed us in, and I remember saying, I'm sorry, I feel I cannot enter your cafe wearing this costume. Um, she said, well, no, never mind, don't mind, come back, please, you're always welcome. Cut to four or five weeks later, we're shooting in that piazza, and it's cold, and the actors are cold, and the production company hires the cafe as a sort of green room. So in that green room are a lot of actors, mostly Israeli, who are playing the poor people who are being rounded up horrendously by the SS and a lot of young very sweet German actors who are playing SS and we're all in the cafe and everyone is talking and communicating and sharing and being actors together and because of what we were making and the horror of what we were making but the human bonding between those particular groups of casting always moved me and I always remember that. Wow. Well, well, thank you. Thank you, Rafe. Thank you, Oleg. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, so that was Ray Fiennes and Oleg Ivenko, and of course, Oleg's translator. Could I just say, yeah. I sat with Nick while he did that interview to, to work the electronic stuff, which he doesn't like. And uh, <laughs> there was a bit when, when Oleg started talking, and we were not necessarily informed that he wasn't going to speak English. So did you, did you know who this guy was? The guy in the room? Yeah. Yeah, well, he was, he was originally just going to be there in case there were difficulties, but like, there was a bit where we... Nick what do you mean in case there were difficulties? You know, I don't know, in case we tried to mug him or something, but, <laughs> but Oleg started speaking, and there was a point where I genuinely wondered if I was having a stroke or something, because he's talking, and I was like, I can't, and what? And it took me, honestly, a good five <laughs> seconds to realise he was actually speaking Russian. It was very confusing. Is a universal translator on the Yeah, on the it was a bit like that. Computer! Yeah. <laughs> oh god it all worked out well all fun <laughs> a translator on a podcast that's amazing who the hell is that who the hell is that anyway a few weeks ago we were delighted to be sponsored by The Economist the legendary magazine and I mean that in the truest sense of the word as in the stuff of legend rather than the way most people use the word you know that Nando's was legendary that film was legendary that podcast about film was legendary 
Why is The Economist legendary? Well, because it's been going for 170 years. 140 more than Empire, in fact, which makes us look like a mere whippersnapper. And you can see why it's still going strong after all these years, because every issue contains incredible articles about economics, or as James might say, economics, (laughs) politics, entertainment, and much, much more. And yes, we're delighted to team up once again with The Economist to offer all Empire podcast listeners, all of you, a free print copy of that esteemed organ. No catches, no hidden tricks, nothing sneaky sneaky, we promise. This is completely free and it could be in your hands soon. All you have to do is text MOVIES, the word MOVIES, to the following number, 78070. That number again, 78070. And pretty soon after that, you'll be reading incredible articles like the one that caught my eye in the most recent edition about how scientists had discovered a monkey fossil in Kenya that they believe is 22 million years old and which is missing an important dental trait known as bilophodonti that indicates that this Kenyan monkey fed on fruits and seeds. Now, that goes against prevailing theory that leaves became a major part of monkey diets after they split from apes 30 million years ago. Stuff like that fascinates me. Not just the idea that monkeys may well have invented the notion of the diet, but as more revelations emerge about how they behaved all those years ago, well, basically it means they're just going to have to do another Planet of the Apes reboot. But this time with Caesar eating a fruit and nut bar instead of, well, a Caesar salad. So, thanks once again to The Economist for sponsoring the show, and do not forget to pick up your free print copy. Movies to 78070. Okay, time now for this week's movie news. What has been happening? Has there been a lot happening? There has been a lot happening. I know this for a fact. There has. There's been a lot of trailers this week. Um, None of that matters, John. None of that matters. <laughs> oh, f- <laughs> there has there has been some news this week. I don't know if you saw this, guys. There oh may, God! Oh no! There may be a torrent of Dune news that we need to get through. So if we could just dedicate this entire section to There's a Dune news two, special. Three, two. Chris. Three Dune news What are the stories. three things? Th- all right, all right. Number one. Dune story of the first. Number one. Dune has started shooting. Why are you leading with that? Because that's the most important thing. Dune is currently filming, and you'll notice I'm here, which means I'm not there, which means something's wrong. But that aside... <laughs> Believe me, <laughs> our loss is their game. <laughs> Dune is shooting. That's number one. Number two. They have Hans Zimmer on hand to score the film, the glorious <laughs> sounds of Arrakis, the sounds of Spice, if you will. The Spice Girls? Yeah, the Spice Girls are doing it. No, they're not. <laughs> That'd be amazing um, if it was just the Spice Girls' greatest hits. Yes. Spice up your life. Yeah. To become one. Yeah. Too much. Yeah. Mama. Fever forever. You know a lot of these. I know a lot of Spice you Girls really stuff. do. Dune uh, become one. <laughs> it's good. It's good. <laughs> Write in with your Dune Spice Girl uh, puns. Yeah. John is very much the, the baby podcast. <laughs> What does that mean? Scary. Okay. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so Hans Zimmer will be scoring the glorious Dune. And, and finally, we have another bit of casting news. They still, I'm sure you're shocked to hear this, Chris, they still haven't uh, haven't cast Fade Rauther, the Harkonnen scion. But while we wait for that, while we wait for that, they have cast Dr. Yui, uh, who's going to be played by Chang Chen. We have no way of verifying if what he's saying is just completely made up. Like, I... <laughs> <laughs> that all, those, those are all made up words well see Dr. Yu is an interesting one because oh. he bears the mark of imperial conditioning upon his forehead Dr. Yu of course played by Dean Stockwell in the uh, David Lynch film uh, well I'm very excited that it's shooting and I look forward to visiting in the set uh, very very soon do you want me to bring anything back? some sand <laughs> and maybe a bit of spice 
Oh my god! I genuinely, if you do get to go and set up that film, I do want to go along. Take me along as your kind of number two. Maybe we can do some podcasts out there because I want to see the light fade in the cast <laughs> members' eyes as you dune splain to them. That would be well, quite when incredible. I turn up in a still suit, like with Fremen contact lenses, and first thing I say is, "My name is a killing word." John, you had some stuff you wanted to talk yes, about. Yes, I was going to talk about some trailers before I got dune rolled by yeah, James. Um, there were some big trailers this week. In fact, there was one that dropped just as we were leaving the office to come here and record oh this. Oh my God. My oh, goodness it me. It was wicked. Yep, very good. Yep. John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum. The second trailer, isn't it? For, second um, trailer, yeah. I watched this trailer and I thought it was absolutely terrific. And uh, it's the film of the summer I'm most excited about. Yep. That isn't Avengers Endgame. Yes, same. It looks insane. Doesn't it? Mm, really excited about this. Mm. You were on set, weren't you? I was. Can you tell us anything? I, Without breaking any kind of embargo. Uh, I can tell you that it looks cool. Yes. That Keanu is having the time of his life. Yes. That I was on set and I saw Mark Dacascos, who you see in the trailer as Ciro, who uh, you'll read about, actually, in this month's Emperor Magazine. We'll get onto that in a few seconds. Mm. And uh, I was also on set that day with uh, Chechep and Yayan, who are two of the actors from The Raid and The Raid 2. Uh, Chechep wasn't in The Raid, he's in The Raid 2. Uh, he's the really wary dude who fights um, Eco Vice in the kitchen at the end of Raid 2. And uh, yeah, there was some pretty gnarly fighting going on. Really, really good stuff. And uh, Chad Stahelski, the director of this movie, he has confidence in himself. He's very, very assured about the movie he's making and about its ability to stack up against pretty much anything else that is being made in action cinema these days. I believe him entirely. I mean, I fair absolutely believe him. some of the stuff in that trailer is just insane. Mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, there's some clips that were in the previous trailer, but we get a better sense of the uh, the sword fight on <laughs> motorbikes, <laughs> which just is bonkers. Yeah. I mean, it's very similar. If you ever saw The Villainess, which I think was a Korean action film from a couple yeah. of years yes. ago, it's yeah. a very similar action sequence. So I think they might have been influenced by that, but it looks unreal. Yeah. Um, and also, it's quite nice. It's maybe a bit like of an obvious uh, reference, but it's quite nice that they got Keanu to say guns, lots of oh guns. Oh my they god, did. I'm so excited yes. about that! I mean, so come that. on, that's an that's an air punch moment, isn't it? It is. It really is. Keanu throwback, which I guess segues us nicely into the next news story, doesn't it? Oh my god, he took yeah. your words right out of my mouth. We don't throw this shit it's together. Christopher Nolan's next. No, it's no. Let's do. Let's do Bill and Ted. Face the music because it's happening. Mm -hmm. It's happening. It was excellent. announced yesterday. <laughs> Most excellent. Uh, it's going to be coming out on 21st of August of next year, 2020. And uh, it's going to be... We, we knew already that it was in the works. We knew already that Dean Pariso, the director of Galaxy Quest, was uh, at the helm of this one. We knew that the original Bill & Ted uh, creators and writers, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, were going to write this one as well. So fingers crossed it's good. But at the same time, there was always that fear, wasn't there, that it might not quite get to the start line but yesterday, Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves released a video uh, where they basically announced it and they look very, very happy to be doing oh, so. It was adorable. So yeah. yeah, they've been trying to make this for absolutely ages haven't they, so it's nice they finally got off the ground I'm really excited to see it, like really excited to see it. Mm. Also, it's, it's how eerie is it, like you see the two of them together and Keanu Reeves basically hasn't aged, he's just grown a beard <laughs> that's it, he just has facial hair otherwise looks the same and he's got that sort of nervous energy of a teenager yeah, as well. Like he he's a, like he's, jumping around like he's, he's full Ted Theodore Logan. Yeah. He is genuinely a guy who just seems to be having the time of his life. Yeah. Uh, he just, he, John Wick, for some reason, seems to be a character that he is connected with. Yeah. I think unlike pretty much anything in his career, probably even Neo, and he's just having an absolute ball. And now he's playing this character. 
that is so him. Yeah. You know, very, very excited by this, indeed. Uh, probably less excited than Nick, who is the big Bill and Ted fan in the office, but uh, I look forward to fitting in the set of that movie as well. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned it as a joke, but we should talk about it. Christopher Nolan is making a new film. Yes. Um, and that's kind of all we know about yes, it. Yes, he's making a film. <clears throat> but we well, don't know what it is. Well, so we knew, we, we learned three things this week. We learned that Elizabeth Debicki is going to be in it. We learned that Robert Pattinson is going to be in it. And we learned that John David Washington is going to be in it. And that's about it. And that's all we know. We don't yeah. know what it is. We don't know when it's set. We mm-hmm. don't know where it goes. Mm-hmm. We know that it won't be on Netflix, <laughs> but other than that... Mm. We know it'll be shot in film. Yes, yes, it will be shot in film. There was. Mm. Um, we know they're using dial-up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a very analogue production. He's written the script in Quill. Yeah. He's had a scribe chisel it into tablets. And speaking of Quill, let's get on to Guardians of the Galaxy. No, we'll, we'll get on well. uh, no, we'll to the second. Uh, yeah, I'm excited about this. I think it's really, really good casting. John David Washington mm, yeah. is uh, was very, very good in Black Klansman. Robert Pattinson. Elizabeth Debicki is great. She She's... Is wonderful and I think that she's kind of gone under the radar a little bit but mm. she's very Kate Blanchetty and I don't just mean in, a, in terms of she comes from Australia and you know she's got these chameleonic abilities but she's she's an incredible actress who I just don't think that people she's still at that kind of who is that stage mm. of her career which is mad given the performances she gave she was brilliant in Widows for example and so maybe this is the one that's going to put her over the top but it's our pats and we should probably declare a moratorium and saying our pats uh, now it's been a few years his presence in this movie is intriguing because after Twilight the furrow that he has ploughed is fascinating because he just seems to be absolutely going against uh, you know he's swimming against the current doesn't want to do blockbusters and now he turns up in a Chris Nolan movie which we can assume will be a huge innovative or innovative <laughs> I got your psycho- psychopathy <laughs> innovative action movie and there was also talk that he might be in the running for Batman to play Batman for Matt Reeves as well so maybe a little bit like Kristen Stewart is suddenly now in Charlie's Angels and mm. you know she still does independent movies obviously or independent movies what the fuck is wrong with me today <laughs> independent movies and maybe he's gone I want a bit of that as well why not why the hell not no I mean it's it's any any Christopher Nolan movie is an event movie really um, I think there was a rumour swirling that this might be a sort of romantic thriller but that that seems to have been quashed, and it's very much action, and there'll be IMAX cameras involved, and mm. it's going to be big. Who it's knows? It's going to be huge. And apparently, there's obviously there's lots more casting to announce, and this is just three people. Yeah. But apparently, there's an older lead role that may be uh, announced as well at some point. So, uh, Kurt Russell, fingers crossed, Kurt Russell. Uh, that'd be great. But, but or Michael Caine. <laughs> you mentioned it briefly. Yes, we did. There's some Guardians. I news. did. Someone did. Now, yes, now the Guardians news, of course, is yes, James. that. Uh huh. James Gunn is back in the picture. He's he back, is back, going back. to be doing Guardians 3 once he's finished the Suicide Squad. And this is something that apparently was agreed some time ago. They've just announced it, mm-hmm. but it's something that, I guess, has been locked down for, for a while, and they've just been waiting for the dust to settle. Well, this was announced just minutes after our podcast went up it on was. Friday, because obviously yeah. that's what happens. Marvel monitors, is the Empire podcast up? Yeah, <laughs> yes, it is. Release the earth-shattering news. Release it. But this is actually, weirdly enough, something that I kind of predicted on previous shows. And now that we have producer Jane here, we can actually go back into the archives and find that exact moment. Let's just have a little listen to this clip. Please don't do that. So, guys, I was just thinking that... Uh, oh, wait, I'm meant to be younger. So, guys, I was just thinking that, you know, this James Gunn business is like, who the hell is that? Uh, that's a reference to a show you'll see in eight months' time. Um... 
I think that's turned into Andrew Scott. I What's happening? You miss me? Did you miss me? <laughs> I think that, that ultimately that what's going to happen is he's going to be directing the Suicide Squad for the Warner Brothers. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> Help me. I've gone down a comedy this rabbit hole. So and I think eventually he'll be directing the Guardians as well. And now well, back to you in the studio. Thanks, Chris. What, you threw it that back to yourself in the future? Temporarily, yeah. yeah. My predictions, I'm like Nostradamus. Yes. The predictions are amazing. But we have that technology, we can play those clips. But because of the, the age of them, the voice goes up a little bit. And I more, never more thought, Irish as well. I never Sorry. thought this would happen. Like, like genuinely, this, this, this floored me. You, you have been saying for a long time, you thought maybe this would happen, but I didn't see it coming. Well, I thought what would happen was that he would, he would get to the starting line with the Suicide Squad, that Warner Brothers, who had no problem whatsoever <laughs> with the admittedly awful tweets that he posted, the awful jokes he posted on Twitter, uh, years and years and years ago. Warner Brothers had no problem with them, whereas Disney clearly did have a problem with them. Warner Brothers said, look, just come over and direct the Suicide Squad for us, or write it and then direct it. And I thought what would happen was, as he got closer and closer and closer to the starting line, it would almost be like a, a, a dare to Disney, like looking at them, look, I'm about to make this film for your competitors. Mm. What are you going to do about it? And then Disney would come in and go, okay, stop making that movie. Come and make Guardians for us instead. Everything's forgiven. But what's happened is he's making both. And then that I did not see coming. It's amazing, isn't it? It's a real rebuke to everyone who campaigned for him to get fired because instead of getting fired, he's got two new jobs. <laughs> it's how, how incredible is that? Yeah, if any right-wing fucknuts to, uh, could campaign for me to get fired from Empire, maybe, <laughs> finally, I'll appear on the Pilot TV podcast. I'll book that gig. It's funny because so they had him. He's been obviously on board. He's been, in, been locked down for this by Disney and they just hadn't told anyone so they in many ways had a <laughs> concealed carry gun permit oh no what <laughs> oh no <laughs> good lord sorry oh sorry and I'm just jealous because I was thinking of something along similar lines anyway, but, yeah. anyway. anyway we should talk about that so the, yeah, the news in case you're a bit baffled by what's happened is that James Gunn was fired by Disney months and months ago uh, because of tweets, jokes that he wrote on Twitter, which were in horrible, bad taste, offensive tweets, awful tweets, which cannot be condoned in any way, shape or form. And they were unearthed when they were just sitting there on his Twitter account. He hadn't deleted them. He hadn't tried to hide them. Um, and they were unearthed by some right wing activists, shall we say, in the States. And then there was a little bit of a, a hubbub. And then Disney reacted to this by firing him over the tweets. Immediately, there was an uproar about this. Uh, the one person who remained calm in all this was James Gunn himself, who said, I you know, obviously don't agree with Disney's decision, but I have to accept it. Mm. I'm a different person now. I'm ashamed of the he person who wrote those tweets. He was very, very contrite. Mm. Because basically what he was, I mean, he was at, at the time when he was a provocateur, he was making these, these shock horror movies. You know, he comes from a trauma background. So he was saying things that were that would fit in very much with that person he was back then, not the person he is now. People are allowed to grow. People are allowed to change. I totally believe that. Anyway, the cast of the cast of Guardians of the Galaxy and its sequel, you know, pretty big names, obviously. And Chris Pratt, I think, is one of James Gunn's best friends. Dave Bautista sounds like he would run through brick walls for the guy as well. They wrote this open letter to Disney, which was incredible when you think about it now, that the cast of this movie kind of openly rebelling against the studio. Disney seemed publicly to hold firm. 
Uh, he had met with the Disney bigwigs. I mean, this is a Disney decision, not a Marvel Studios decision. Mm-hmm. This is a Disney decision. And, you know, they had friendly discussions, but it seemed that that was it. And he went on to be offered the Suicide Squad, took the Suicide Squad, is prepping the Suicide Squad, casting the Suicide Squad, and that will start filming very, very soon. I thought that was it. But now, as you, as you say, apparently they, they'd been having meetings in secret over the last few months, and a rapprochement was was reached mm. and here we are i wonder whether it's is it because uh, the bar for what is unacceptable on twitter has been frankly rising steadily on a daily basis with new things like your tucker carlson recently there's so much of this stuff going on now that it seems relatively mild by comparison or more likely they realized maybe they've been a little bit should we say quick off the mark quite early on but didn't want to climb down for it so kind of climbed down in secret and said yeah but let's leave it a few months before we go public with this so we don't look you know that mm. Absolutely. I'd be fascinated to know exactly when this decision was made. Like, was it the week afterwards, or was it, you know, how how long mm. did it take? Yeah, maybe we'll ask him one day yeah. if, we, if we get the chance. Maybe it was just a couple of months ago. Who knows? Maybe mm. it was around the time the Suicide Squad began to really click into gear. Maybe there is an element of truth to my supposition. Who knows? Maybe but, uh, it's, a, it's a good thing either way because his DNA is, runs all the way through those films, and Guardians are so. They're so funny and they're so likable and there's so much of them that I think would be lost without him doing it that actually this 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 makes my heart sing a little bit that he's he's bad doing this. What I will say very very quickly about this is obviously that this is throwing things into disarray slightly because Marvel haven't announced their plans for post Avengers Endgame yet officially. We know that the wheels are are churning on some stuff, including the Black Widow solo movie, which Florence Pugh mm. is going to be cast in or she's in talks to play what we believe is the second lead in that movie and the filming's going to start in a couple of months time so they haven't announced stuff yet but Guardians 3 had gun not been fired and had the movie not been delayed and postponed would presumably been at the vanguard of their phase 4 so it probably would have been April of next year that's clearly not going to be the case now I would wager given Gunn's schedule on the Suicide Squad that we're not going to see Guardians 3 whatever the makeup of that team is, until 2022. So that changes things an awful lot. They're having to roll with the punches a little bit, more than I, I imagine mm-hmm. a studio with a structure that, that strict well, would let's, want. Let's also bear in mind that Disney should have, shall we, shall we say, a lot on their plate at the moment, given that their acquisition of Fox officially went through this week. Yes. Mm. Which has rather been a game changer. In fact, on the official Disney website, they've started <laughs> to add things like The Symptoms and Avatar now appears on there mm-hmm. as well. They're sort of cementing their ownership Deadpool. of all the old Fox properties, including Deadpool. Yeah, so this is this is a big thing. There was a report in uh, The Hollywood Reporter that said that Deadpool might be the only member of the X-Men to actually make the transfer yeah. like the the X-Men is essentially going to get rebooted yes yeah I would um, say that almost certainly because they'll need to keep him I think separately because tonally he doesn't work yeah. with the MCU at all yeah I think he'll maintain a separate thing where he won't be part of the MCU but the MCU might bleed into him so that he can lampoon it and and, and riff on it but I definitely don't think he'll, <laughs> yeah he already does well exactly <laughs> yeah. I think it will bleed into him but he won't bleed into it I mean, this is a seismic shift. Yeah, like the Alien Queen is now a Disney princess. <laughs> it's like so much has happened. I mean, but also all of the Star Wars movies are now kind of unified in a place where original editions of of Star Wars and whatnot could theoretically now be released by Disney quite happily. There's but a lot of moving parts. It's still very early days yet, and we don't know quite what this is going to mean for the industry. We don't quite know what this is going to mean for 20th Century Fox. Is that going to be shuttered? Is it going to become part of Disney? We believe the Fox Searchlight is going to continue mm. on because that's very much the, the Oscar-y, awards-worthy, independent arm of Fox. 
And you'd imagine that 20th Century Fox will also be allowed to continue to produce its own movies. It, it can deal with R-rated stuff a little bit more mm. easily, a lot more easily than, than Disney can. But also, fundamentally, you know, I've seen a lot of chatter this week on Twitter, and in fact, ever since it was announced, about which MCU, which X-Men character we'd like to see in MCU first. And it'll happen, mm. and when it happens, we'll examine it then. But I'm kind of more interested in what this is going to mean for the industry. And I saw this week... You know, reports that there might be up to 4,000 layoffs mm-hmm. across both companies yeah. as they meld the two companies together and as they begin to recalibrate and then set the course for the future. Now, those people may be rehired at some point. We don't know. Disney clearly have very ambitious plans. It means generating a lot of content. But 4,000 layoffs is not to be sniffed at. Yeah, and and also the, the fact that the Disney were already, by some margin, the biggest studio in Hollywood, that yeah. they're even bigger means there's a little bit less sort of competition in the field. There was the big six has now become the yeah. big five. I was a bit like, I, I, my reaction was a little bit like that. It feels like they've joined the ranks of Google and Amazon and Apple in controlling our destinies. Yes. And I just thought when the announcement went through, I was just like, it was like millions of voices cried out in terror <laughs> and were suddenly silenced. That said, Fo- they, what yeah. they've done with, you know, things like Star Wars and Marvel, they've, yeah. they've actually, they've, They've produced some pretty quality content, you could say. Oh, um, yeah, I don't think anyone would take that away I, from I them. think, uh, you know, they, they seem like good stewards, even if they are like giant behemoths that will destroy us all. <laughs> like, they seem to recognize talent and hire good people who know how to tell good stories. So this could result in some positive things. It's, it's, it's really hard to tell at this stage, isn't it? it absolutely, it really is hard to tell. And you know, But there is a sense of a feeling that a little bit of film history is being lost sure. in a weird way. I mean, I don't know if we've all been on the 20th Century Fox lot. The Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah, going to the Daryl F. Sanak Theatre and seeing the movies there and just walking around and just getting a sense of the history. And I don't think they're going to raise it to the ground anytime soon. I think <laughs> that will still be there. The incredible film library that 20th Century Fox has built up over the decades is still going to be there. The Fox fanfare hopefully won't go anywhere. In fact, I hope it will go back on to Star Wars movies yeah. from now because for me that is a huge part of the process and ultimately I think this could be something that we may end up celebrating in a way you know when we don't know it's at the very very early stages but uh, it does feel like a, a real moment and while we're speaking about Hollywood and history nice nice thank you like that very good it makes sense for us to talk about the first teaser trailer for Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which yes. debuted this week. And the poster, posters, in fact. Posters were kind of met with a bit of eh, people shrugging shoulders going, that's a bit rubbish, isn't it? But the trailer, the teaser trailer, what do you think of that? I like the trailer a lot. I am no clearer to understanding really what the film's about. Yeah. But I think it's great. You know, the, it's, It has fascinated me. It has latched my interest firmly onto it. It had your attention. Yes. And now it has your curiosity. Or is it, (laughs) it had your curiosity and now it has your attention. I can never remember that quote. It has both at this stage. (laughs) John, what did you think of it? I liked it. It looked fun. It's it's only a teaser at this point. I think it's only like 90 seconds. So we don't really know much about it, but... I mean, Leo and Brad together, that's a star combination, isn't it? They look like they've got a real sort of charismatic chemistry going on there. The one thing I can't get over with this film is that Leo is playing the star, right? He's playing like this Hollywood star. That's right. And Brad Pitt is playing his stuntman. Uh So we are to assume that Brad Pitt is like the ugly one of this pair. That's is that, is that what we have to... <laughs> no. This is my suspension no. of disbelief is struggling We're to assume here. that he's the less talented of the pair. I mean, again, it's it's 
you just look at him and he's like, well, obviously he's a Hollywood star. I can't believe we wouldn't see, want to see his face. I just want to see his face. And I, you'll get to see his face. I just, it's such a good face. And sometimes his shoulders as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm no closer to understanding what this movie is tonally because it seems like quite a bright, breezy, mm. funny, almost a comedy in a way. And we get glimpses of, obviously, as you said, Leo, Brad Pitt. We yeah. see Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate. And because she's playing Sharon Tate, and we know it's set in the late 1960s, and we know that Sharon Tate was murdered by the Manson family yeah. in the 1960s, and we know the Manson family is in this movie, you'd expect this to get pretty dark and pretty heavy mm. pretty quickly, but there's no indication of that in this teaser. There's also a lightness of touch. To there's uh, some fun, Brad Pitt has some fun interplay with Bruce Lee in this, yep. uh, which made me laugh. Yep. So it has the Tarantino vein of humour in there. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, this, it's, it's promising. I think, as you say, it's impossible to make any kind of judgement on tone, on taste, on how good it is from this, but it's Quentin Tarantino, so have a degree of faith. Uh, and I think we'll know more when the second trailer drops. Okay, so let's wrap up movie news now by talking about the greatest movie news of them all, which is that the new issue of Empire is now on sale in all good and evil news agents. It is our Avengers Endgame cover. It is our Avengers Endgame issue. And you know that bit earlier on the podcast where I said I hadn't seen the Avengers movies? (laughs) Just a little joke. I have um, some of them twice, in fact. And... Very, very excited about this. This is, of course, the 22nd movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is the culmination of what Kevin Feige calls the Infinity Saga. Told me that himself out of his own mouth. And it's in there in the uh, the feature. I spoke to him. I spoke to the directors, Anthony and Joe Russo. I spoke to the writers, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, and got the inside scoop on how they came up with that ending of Infinity War and how that changed things and how that informed their plans for Avengers Endgame, which... Quite frankly, it might be one of the biggest films of all time. What else is in the issue? Well, we have a feature on Godzilla, King of the Monsters, talking to the film's director, Michael Doherty. We have a celebration, the latest Empire 30 celebration of one of our favourite filmmakers, this case, Danny Boyle, who talks about his incredible ability to go between different genres, and he also answers your readers' questions. We have an oral history of the Blair Witch Project, which is 20 years old this year. And the Empire interview is Nicholas Holt. Nicholas Holt, old J.R.R. Tolkien himself. Uh, we also have reports from John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum, that was me, Men in Black International, that was you, John. Mm-hmm. There's loads of great stuff. In my section, review the home entertainment section. Stephen Cable Jr., the director of Creed 2, talks us through that movie. Mike Lee talks about Peter Liu and its interesting reception. Helen O'Hara had an audience with the great Shirley MacLaine, uh, talking about Irma LeDuce, the other Billy Wilder, Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine movie that not many people really talk about. We have Free Solo. Oh, my God. I'm just looking at my section now. It is so good. It is so good. My, my section is quite good as well, actually. It's Chris. okay, John. It's, but my section um, is, if you could bottle a section and sell it as an aftershave. Yeah. I mean, my, or, so my section's got Arctic. Or perfume. I spoke to the director, Joe Penner. Um, yeah, spoke to no. the director of Tolkien. We had the headline, Look Who's Tolkien. Yeah, but I mean, we spoke to good. Tolkien in the um, main... We spoke to Peter Strickland. It's good, It's good. You get points. You get points. Oh, that's good. Yep. That's good. Very, very good. Everyone likes it. All right. So there you go. Empire on sale right now. All good and evil news agents and digitally as well. So pick it up. And while we're here plugging the hell out of things, it behooves me to tell you about two sister podcasts you should pop into your podcast schedule for when and no sooner the Empire podcast is finished. Don't listen to the before the Empire podcast. After. One, of course... Is Keith's favourite podcast, the Pilot TV podcast, which does for TV. (laughs) 
what Nigel for no what uh, what we do for film. Jimbo, what's on the Pilot TV podcast this week? Well, this week we got to stop you there because I need to talk <laughs> as well. <laughs> no, 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 dude, tell you me. Are the I'm, worst interested. Human. I'm interested. I'm interested. I'm actually interested. Uh, this week we have watched the fifth series of Jeremy Curiel's Line of Duty, which is back, which is very exciting. What do you mean the fifth? Okay, okay. Now I do have to stop you. You watched the fifth series? Yes. The whole of the fifth series? No, no. The, the BBC made one episode available. The first <laughs> so one. So you're a liar. Well, no. Technically, we've watched. And your podcast is full of lies. It is. I sit upon a throne of podcast lies. But anyway, we are dealing with Line of Duty, which is uh, the BBC's hit drama series. We also speak to Vicky McClure and Martin Compson, who are guests on this week's podcast. The new uh, Jesse Armstrong and Sam Bain produced comedy uh, Dead Pixels we're reviewing as well. Love those guys. Very good. Um, Yeah, no, it's all good stuff. And the return of The Good Fight. Oh, the, the Good Wife spin-off, yeah, which is now... spin-off, which I very much enjoy. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's good. Yeah. All right, this sounds great. Uh, I am now going to sign up to your podcast. Uh, oh, oh no, I've deleted it from my library. Oh, that's a shame. Thanks, Chris. Uh, but there is another podcast you should listen to. We also have Q Presents, The Making Of, that's the full name of the show, in which Ted Kessler, editor of the legendary Q magazine, sits down with musicians of note, of note, do you see that? Musicians of note. Oh, it's good. That's a music pun. I know, it's good. And talks to them about stuff over a bag of quavers. Quavers. Yeah. This week's guest, you're going to love this. Go on, hit me with it. Is Ja Wobble. Who's Ja Wobble? He's a bass player. He's slapping the bass man. No, he's so. actually, he is a very good bass player. I've heard that Ja rules. <laughs> but I'm also reliably informed that he's a singer as well. Yeah, very much looking forward to that one. Uh, one more plug while we're here. As you know, Empire turns 30 this year by weird coincidence picture house cinemas also turned 30 this year so we got together and we thought hey you're 30 we're 30 why don't we do something together and so we are indeed doing a year-long partnership yes i know we're almost in april already shut up but we're going to be screening various films from the empire 30 pantheon the empire 30 canon all the way through what remains of 2019. And the first film is going to be Jordan Peele's Get Out, and that's going to be screening in picture houses across the country on 30th of March. Tickets are on sale right now, and if you are a subscriber to Empire Magazine, you can get in for just £5. And that, that sounds like an incentive to subscribe to Empire Magazine to me. It does. One of the many incentives. Where can I sign up, Chris? You can sign up, you can get full information, you can get tickets, you can get the whole kit and caboodle, EmpireOnline.com That's a popular website you may have heard of forward slash picture house So check that out Okay, time now for our second guest Winston Duke burst onto the scene in glorious fashion as M'Baku in Black Panther Marvel's Black Panther last year after years of quite frankly and he admits it himself in this interview struggling as an actor going through audition after audition after audition and never quite getting anywhere but now after Black Panther, he has Jordan Peele ringing him up and saying, hey, do you want to star in my second movie, Us, my follow-up to Get Out? And obviously, when you get that phone call, you go, yes, please, where do I sign? And so we have Winston Duke this week in Us, the doppelganger horror film, which he plays dual roles. He plays Gabe, who is this fun-loving, very goofy dad, and also Abraham, who is a much more sinister, hulking brute of a doppelganger, an evil twin, and he is incredible in both roles. I went along last week to speak to him in London, and it's 
a fascinating conversation. Winston Duke is a very, very smart dude. He's very, very serious about his process as an actor. And uh, I was pretty much enthralled by what he had to say. You know what? I hope you guys will be too. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the star of Us, Winston Duke. How are you, sir? Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Good, good, good. We were just having a chat about all the different kinds of waters. You're telling me <laughs> that there is a water sommelier. That yes, there is, yes. I just thought there was clear and slightly sparkly clear. You would think, but there's all <laughs> kinds of different waters, apparently. Glacial and yep. you know, all these different things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. water all the different, all the different uh, minerals and things that can be in the water can make it salty. It is fantastic. Uh, there you go. I might have to try some extra water after this after this interview. Uh, how are you? Jet lagged? You okay? I am good. I am good. Excellent. Excited. Yeah, you must be excited because this is uh, obviously this is a fantastic film as well. But it is kind of the culmination of an incredible. I'd say 18 months to 24 months for you. I'll just say two years. 24 months sounds weird. Yeah, yeah. What's the experience of the last two years been like for you? It's been great. I mean, just making this movie, and it's something that we've kept under wraps for so long that it's really great to finally be seeing it consumed. Yeah. Um, We premiered it at South by Southwest. Yes. How was that? Wonderful to just an electric audience, uh, an audience that was so involved in almost every single part of the movie. Yeah. You know, they cued us into some of the nuances that we'd never even saw while we were watching. Oh, really? Before, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So they picked up on a lot of little moments and a lot of little beats that we were like, oh, didn't think that was funny, but it's pretty funny. That's the thing yeah. about this movie. This is, yeah. uh, you know, it's a scary film. I saw it. I didn't see it in SXXW with the, uh, that's why I'm calling it. I don't, <laughs> is that what you call it? You South say, by Southwest. What do you just say South by Southwest? Yeah, we say South by. It's so much easier to say than SXSW, isn't it? <laughs> what the hell am I doing? But uh, I didn't see it in that situation. I saw it with three other people yeah. and I was still jumping in all the right places. Oh, man. It's totally laughing. different with a huge crowd Oh as my well. God. It kind of sense. reminds you that you know, a big part of the cinematic experience is seeing it with an audience, a group, yeah. a big group. And it felt like a roller coaster where you were all saying we're buckled in for this group experience <laughs> and it's rising, it's going, it's going. We're at the peak and you're looking down and it falls. Yeah. And you're all, oh my God. And you know you're not going to die, but it doesn't stop <laughs> you from acting as if you are anyway, you know, yeah. and enjoying it. So. I'm always convinced that on a roller coaster, I'm going to be in that one seat that, that just that, ejects that, you that into the air. Breaks loose. <laughs> yeah. The seatbelt doesn't quite buckle yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It doesn't really happen in, in horror films. But the thing about Us, it's a film that obviously has a lot to say. It has a lot in its mind. Jordan has a lot in his mind mm-hmm. as well. It's a film that has multiple layers uh, mm-hmm. working as well. One of those layers is, and this shouldn't be a surprise given it's Jordan Peele and the man is very, very funny, is that it's a funny film. I mean, there, there, it's obviously horror. There are jump scares, mm-hmm. and it you know it, it gets you down to the, the back of your neck. Mm-hmm. But it is a funny film as well. I mean, mm-hmm. your character Gabe is a is a is a big part of that. Yeah, Gabe really does a lot of different things, and one of those things is functionally he plays the clown archetype, mm-hmm. and the clown archetype is there for so much more than just laugh. So he's very funny, but he also gets to have a lot of agency and a lot of. Uh, status in the space so he gets to kind of be the truth teller Mm. he gets to be in the action but not be defined by it so he can still make commentary and funny 
jokes about it. He also gets to have the biggest heart in the film, where he shows the love and and all these different things and lust and all these different things all at once. So he plays so many different roles, and he also gets to be this guy that is a big metaphor for what the perils of comfort and privilege yeah. looks like. Yeah, you know. Um, a lack of awareness and aloofness, but still feel familiar and, you know. That, that feeling of security as well. Yes, that comes, that's, yes that, that comes deeply from privilege. Yeah. So really knowing the function of Gabe allowed me to really lean into why he's funny. And sometimes things that you don't intend to be funny comes out a lot funnier when you're looking at it through a lens yeah. of privilege, yeah. through a lens of the patriarchy mm. that, just doesn't work <laughs> in those situations. It's it's hard to be to have a lens of an ism uh-huh. when you're fighting for survival. <laughs> like, it's like if I need an ally to save my life, I don't really care if it's a black guy. You know yeah, what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Like yeah. I don't care if it's a woman. Yeah. Like you can't be racist. <laughs> in the zombie apocalypse you know um True. so it really alludes to those different things of like what really benefits you mm. what really serves you mm. and by setting it in a space of extremis we really get to see what functionally does work and what yeah, doesn't yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know in our society and are these conversations that you had with jordan Early we on. had some, but yeah. not a lot. So for me, I took it on myself knowing that aesthetic, mm-hmm. like knowing that it was a Jordan Peele world and aesthetic. I have to, it, it was helpful for me to understand the intellectual and be able to translate it into something that was actable. Yeah. That I could do in the person to person interaction. Mm. That was my process, and Jordan even giving us the homework of watching a certain amount of films. Okay. Yeah, to familiarize ourselves with the genre. Such as? Well, for me, what I got attached to was The Shining, you know, (laughs) and to see how a family operates within the, the genre and see how a monster could be created from something that feels really familiar. Yeah. But feels really foreign as well through its depiction and performance. Mm-hmm. We watched, you know, a lot of different things, Baba Duke and all these different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh the shining stuck with me and I was like, this is my thing. So I really like <laughs> leaned into a lot of that stuff and like really looked at what the familiarity, how I could do that and do it in my own way. And I found what was my Inlet was, okay, I've been exposed to these sitcom dads all my life, right? That was my experience with the father trope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Uncle Phil and, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and Fresh Prince, um, Carl Winslow, Homer Simpson. I was like, how do we take something that feels so familiar, right? Mm -hmm. Where I would invite this guy into my living room once a week. And that's what I wanted Gabe to feel like. I wanted Gabe to feel really familiar. He's either someone you'd watch on TV once a week or someone that you'd have a beer with at the at the pub or, you know, like some something. But make him be still quite distant in his performance, like in the way he sees the world and make you question, is this really what I'm attached to? Wow. And on the flip side of that coin, 
you have Abraham. Mm-hmm. And, and Abraham should feel distant, but in deep retrospect, you should question if Abraham is really a villain or not. Mm. Right? So I wanted us to just redefine how we look at violence, how we look at villain, right? And ask if Abraham really functioned as that. I wanted Abraham not to possess just what we see as evil or crazy. Mm. I wanted him to have a deep sadness Mm. and for there to be some level of horror in him as well at seeing his doppelganger. Yes, which I can imagine must be pretty freaky. Right. So, you know. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it from their side, Leah. Yeah, the, the and, and, yeah. And that's the whole thing is that we don't really think of who we render invisible, who we mm. render speechless, who we render and essentially subject into our shadow. Can I just say that uh, I, I'm loving how deep you went into both roles because I'm thinking of, say, for example, Jean-Claude Van Damme played dual roles in Double Impact. Mm -hmm. And to differentiate between those roles, he slicked his hair back for one and kept his hair down for the other. Now, you could have just done that, Winston. (laughs) (laughs) Eyebrows, no eyebrows. (laughs) Glasses, no glasses. It's that simple. But you, you you went deep, and I like that. Yeah, well, I wanted to have these two be able to really interact with each other without it seeming just cliche in any way and for them to validly interact they have to have perspective Mm. and conflict is what drives drama like different perspectives Mm. that clash and for them to clash it has to be you know they have to have their own minds they have to be their own person they can't just be shadows of each other that just Mm. I'm good, I'm bad, you know? Uh, you know, it's, yeah. And there's a really cartoonish version of this movie. Yeah, there's good and then there's, you know, but I wanted them to have their own personalities. They had, you know, Abraham is in desperate need of the things that Gabe takes for granted. And uh, is that something that you did as well for M'Baku? for example, that sort of, that level of, of depth always. and examination of a character. I, I always do that with my work. It's really to tell fully flushed out people, no matter what real estate you have, <laughs> you yeah. know, whether you are the lead or whether you have a scene or two scenes, it's to try to be as fully flushed out in the experience as possible. Yeah. And sometimes that it totally informs how you're shot. That totally informs how you're edited. That totally informs a lot of different things by the amount of work and perspective that you bring into it. So M'Baku's a man that is defined and is, you know, governed by, again, his attachments, but his attachments are community. Mm. You know, he comes from a communal space. So he speaks in we's. He doesn't speak in I. Mm. You know, it's a lot of we and we can't, you know. So he's a pillar of his community. Mm. And he has to be an example. He is also a politician as much as he's a warrior. He's also connected through faith a lot differently than, you know what I mean? He's also mm. an outsider. Mm. He he looks at Wakanda from an outsider perspective. Really, the whole way of interacting with the world is colored by 
essentially what creates you, the landscape, mm. the landscape of the Jabari. You know, they're a cold weather people. You know, they are there are people who haven't been informed or defined by the same isms as the audience. Right? So they haven't had the same history of being told that their blackness compared to a monkey or a gorilla is mm. a weakness. Yeah. So they can celebrate that mm. in this way and use it as a weapon <laughs> against others. Yeah. Like that grunting scene was totally improvised. Really? Yeah. Wow. So like things like that come out of just looking at things, you know, from different perspectives and bringing that into the... The scene the, where uh, M'Baku intimidates uh, Everett. Ross. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's so one of my like, favorite That was favorite totally, lines. you know, it was literally just <laughs> the lines. And, you know, I was like, how do I communicate intimidation? Yeah. How do I intimidate him in a totally my way? Yeah. And he spoke and I just started going at it, you know? So, but that's, it's that kind of world where... Because you do that much work and bring yes. that much perspective, yes. you can make bold choices. I read an interview with you where you said that you had, before you got Black Panther, you had done something like 300, 400 editions. I'm, I'm sure you weren't keeping an exact count. but wasn't in, keeping in, an exact count. In, in, in that ballpark. I wasn't, but it was in that ballpark, yeah. yeah. And uh, you clearly prepare meticulously. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you got to the stage with Black Panther. I think it was about your third mm -hmm. audition where you suddenly find yourself in a room with Chadwick Boseman mm -hmm. and you're told to wrestle. Essentially, mm -hmm. that's, that's yeah. I believe, what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you haven't had a chance to prepare for something that meticulously, when you don't even necessarily know mm -hmm. what the role is, how how do you let yourself roll with the punches in that way that you can just, oh, I'll wrestle this dude who's playing well, Black Panther? You make the experience your own. So yeah. for the Black Panther auditions, I had never done a screen test before. Yeah. But I knew... Screen tests aren't a new experience. Of course. So I went and I YouTubed screen tests. <laughs> and I saw what screen tests looked like. And I saw the form. Uh -huh. And I said, oh, so I can expect a different kind of camera. And I can expect or there's a good chance that there could be an improvised actual set. And there's multiple people in the room. And it's just, it's more of a, a highly subsidized audition you know like it's <laughs> i can expect to do a little bit more and potentially interact you know with more things so i could prepare myself for that yeah. instead of being thrown in every way yeah what is that um, exactly yeah. um really latching on to any kind of clue and i think that's the power of great scripts and i come from a background where i was taught that the reason it's called a playwright mm -hmm. and it's W-R-I-G-H-T is because it's like shipwright. Mm -hmm. And that plays, good plays are built. They're not written. Mm -hmm. So they're built with everything yeah. that you need. They're yeah. built with all the information that you need. You just know, need to know how to find the information that you need. You know? Yeah. So it definitely is that kind of theater background that helps. Um, but it's really, the theater background doesn't really 
contextualize it only. It, it's it's more of a, it's a thoughtful background. Yeah. So looking at your work your work from a thoughtful space. So really going into those auditions where you don't get a lot of information, but if you're looking at it thoughtfully, it gives you a lot of what you need. Were you ever disheartened at any point? Completely. <laughs> Just uh, yeah. destroyed. Yeah. You know, wondering if it's the right thing to do. How am I going to pay rent? What is the next thing? Um, people aren't seeing me for what I bring. And you know what I mean? Sometimes the reasons why they chose not to go with you was, you know, you were too tall. You remind me of my brother. I hate my brother. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so there's so many things that you can and can't control in many audition spaces that it was hard but that's the reality for uh 95% of actors out there you know um and that's why they're they're soldiers you know what they, kept you going belief in myself and any time i got to actually act it was a vacation <laughs> you know that that was the actual vacation acting was the vacation yeah so anytime i got to act it was like act and do a good job yeah it was just like oh my goodness this is why i do it i'd go into that temporal tunnel mm. where 14 hours could pass and you're just like oh i didn't feel it because <laughs> i'm doing something i like yeah right? and, and that's really the thing on set is Six hours will pass. Seven hours will pass, especially with film um, where they're doing so much setup. It's hurry up and wait, hurry up and yeah. wait, hurry up and wait. Yeah. But you're so dialed in that six, seven, 14 hours <laughs> will pass. And you're like, oh, the day's done already. And I'd never <laughs> felt that. I, You know, I'd, I'd worked in retail. I've worked in the restaurant business. And half an hour would be like, oh man, so is it time to get off? Like, no. <laughs> it's 9.30. It's 9.30. <laughs> like your shift just started. Um, so it's really that kind of thing where it's the total opposite experience um, when you're not doing something that feels right. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I'm presuming Us was not an audition situation? Um, us was not an audition situation. Jordan called and told me he wanted me to do the project and asked um, what my thoughts would be after reading the script. So I read the script, thought it was beautiful, and we we got going. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. That must have been a hell of a call to take. Oh, I, I just didn't <laughs> expect it. I met him at the Oscars probably three weeks prior. Yeah. And then saw him again at an after party. And, you know, I just thought that was it. I thought I would be just gushing to him about you know how much of a fan i am uh -huh. um and then three weeks later i'm getting a call and we're talking about projects and i'm like <laughs> it's really just so surreal yeah. and it's still surreal to be in this position you know i feel incredibly privileged incredibly privileged to be a part of a world that's shaped by such a visionary mind i feel privileged to just know that i'm in the same timeline as this guy <laughs> you know <laughs> like i'm in the same timeline continuum as this guy that people will say one day oh yeah he did that jordan peele movie he did us you know so <laughs> to be able to count myself lucky for those reasons 
<laughs> well, I'll raise a glass of clear still water to clear that. still water. Clear, but not, is it ever? It's not glacial. I don't know. <laughs> it just looks. It's pretty clear. It's pretty it's clear. It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. Winston Duke. It's been a pleasure. Thank Absolute you, man. Pleasure. Cheers. Okay, so that was Winston Duke, and now let's talk about us. Not us, but the film Us, directed by Jordan Peele, director of Get Out. Jimbo. Us, yes, this is Jordan Peele's follow-up to Get Out and stars Lupita Nyong'o as Adelaide Wilson, who, shall we say, she, along with her family, encounter a series of people who look a lot like they do. Like uh, Martin Brennan. They say, who the hell is that? that? That's a massive spoiler, Chris. I can't believe you've gone down that road. Uh, yes, that's exactly what happens in this one. It's an interesting one because there's so much weight of uh, expectation on this film. Because Get Out, you know, Oscar nominated, huge hit, massive crossover appeal. And then he's come up with this one, which I would say is no less layered with subtext. But I think it's more along the lines of a nuts and bolt horror than, uh, than Get Out was. Why are you looking at me like that? I like you. Did I say something wrong? Was no, that no? no. You, that's just your face. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Uh, yeah. This is more a nuts and bolts horror. It's a classic sort of evil, evil doppelganger kind of story. <laughs> that classic story of scary <laughs> families that look exactly like you turning up in your driveway wearing red jumpsuits and wielding gold-plated scissors. Um, <laughs> but this this is one that really really got me. Like it really stayed. I mean, we watched this together, didn't we, Chris? Mm-hmm. Uh, this stayed with me a lot. I enjoyed it a great deal when I saw it and. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And it's kind of, I really, really want to see it again. I do not want to talk about the plot on any level, as I think the basic setup for this is self-explanatory, and I think what you see in the trailer is all you need to know. To talk about any more of it than that, I think, well, would spoil the film, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, suffice to say, it's not just what it appears to be. There's a lot more to it than that. It gets weird. Uh, it gets weird. It gets so weird, it gets very weird. But the things to point out in this, I'd say twofold. One, the performance in this are absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. I think Winston Duke is fantastic in this. Also, not just in a sort of physical action horror role, but he's really, really funny in this as well. Mm-hmm. I think Jordan Peele's history in comedy comes through in this mm-hmm. a lot more strongly than it did in, in Get Out. But mm-hmm. Lupita Nyong'o is... I mean, her performance in this is just insanely good. (laughs) No, but insanely good. So she plays her main character as Adelaide perfectly well, but then as Red, as the evil doppelganger, it is like looking at a completely different person. The way she moves, the way she talks. She has this weird, almost marionette, sort of balletic Mm. method of moving her body, and it's absolutely unbelievable. So that's really good. And also, on a side note, I thought the use of music in this film was incredible. So it uses the... um, Five on it, which is by five on it. Yeah, yeah. Who's it by? The the, the beat comp. I, re- I looked it up this week. I looked it up. Yeah. I should know it. The loonies. The loonies. The loonies. Is that uh, how you pronounce it? I don't know. I know nothing about music. I should be yeah. abundantly clear. But the use of that song and the way it is woven seamlessly into the film score is is pretty awesome. It is fantastic, uh, John. Yeah, I agree. I would say it's more than a nuts and bolts horror for me. I thought it was really clever. Like sort of almost world-building satire. And again, mm. it's very hard to talk about it without saying It is, anything. yeah. But I, but I really love the premise of it. Um, I almost thought like that sort of high-concept premise worked more for me than the home invasion horror stuff, which, you know, was effective yeah. and it's quite violent, but it didn't feel like he was particularly breaking new ground on that side of mm. things. You know, we were saying in the office how... There's a danger with the amount of hype that Get Out got that yes. this expectation can ruin a film like this. Yeah, like I this agree. is his like his sophomore effort. There's all the attention on it. Everyone is expecting the next best thing since sliced bread. And I'm, perhaps it's not that, but that does not mean to say it's a fantastic film. I think it's extraordinary, yeah. really, really good. And 
it looks amazing. I think we really does, need to yeah. um, give a shout out to Mike Giolakis, the uh, cinematographer for this, who's mm. who's done some fantastic work in this, and he he also did uh, Glass and It Follows, mm-hmm. um, and he, he makes the film just look so extraordinary. The way he uses lights yeah, yeah, yeah. is really really special, especially in some of the darker scenes. Yeah, and I just love some of the iconography of this film. Like it has one of the best final shots of any film I've seen in a long yeah. time. That image has stayed with me for ages and ages. I think it's brilliant. I think it's a really, really good film and it deserves to be seen on a big screen with a large crowd of people. Yeah, it's an interesting one because Get Out is is a horror, but this is more of a horror. It's more a classic yeah. horror, I think, than Get Out is. It's not scary so much as I think it is creepy and deeply unnerving. Mm. Uh, but I like it's, it. And it's, it's not about race, is it? It's more about, I guess, I mean, I think consumerism it's in um, being American, what it is yeah. to be an American, mm. and, yeah. and certainly in this day and age. I wrote the review for this, and I had to tiptoe around an awful lot because I do not want to spoil this for people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, I, I avoided seeing the second trailer for this movie, and I'm really, really glad I did because I saw the first trailer, and that... I had assumptions about what this movie was going to be and mm. certain fates that were going to befall certain characters and I'm glad to say that the rug was pulled from under my feet yeah. many, many times and Peel is the real deal. Yes, he, uh, he very, very much is and, you know, there can be great horror films that don't have weightier issues on their mind. Yeah. Evil Dead 2, the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> doesn't have a doesn't have a thought in its beautiful head. <laughs> but equally, horror is a wonderful playground for directors like Peel and like George Romero and like David Cronenberg and Wes Craven who want to say something and this movie has a lot to say and we will be getting into it in depth in our Us Spoiler Special which will be up on Monday 25th of March and I sat down for that and had a long in-depth spoiler filled chat with Jordan Peel who is one smart cookie now I gave this I guess I gave this four yeah and if you put a gun to my head or gold play decisions to my head right now and said, why did you give a four and not five? I'm not sure I could give you a reason. It feels like a five to me now. Because like you, I've been thinking about it an awful lot. Yeah, it festers. It's mm, tough when you have to write a review sometimes and just kind of yeah. give it a star rating based on one viewing and you come out of it. I think it's a tremendous film. I think it's one of these films where I think it's a four, but I think it's a four as a Jordan Peele film. I think if this were a film that came out of nowhere and you had no idea who made it or where it was coming from, it would absolutely blow your mind. You'd think it was incredible. Fully agreed. Uh, I can't wait to see what he does next. And hopefully it's another horror film and another one after that and another one after that. Four stars then for us. Next we go on to The White Crow. And uh, John, this is obviously, as you've heard, the tale of how Rudolf Nureyev defected to the West. It's Ray Fiennes tackles ballet. Yeah, although but not. Yeah, I don't think you could call it a ballet movie necessarily. But is it ballet good? It's ballet good. Um, no, it's 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 quite good. I, it's an interesting film. It is a really fascinating real life character, and there is loads of story there. You know, there's there's the sort of classic becoming an elite dancer and being forced into or challenging yourself to become the best of the best in your chosen field so there's that that sort of almost sports dramery element to it but then mm. you've got this added element of living in soviet russia at a time when you know you're being watched and and oppressed and and wanting to be free you know there's a sort of this sense that dance sets you free and he wants to kind of really live up to that that ideal so there's a lot of ideas floating about in this one, mm. and I'm not sure they all necessarily coalesce. Mm. I think um, 
some of the stuff with the dancing i mean it's very impressive mm-hmm. um you you don't doubt the commitments in some of the dancing i, I think uh oleg ivenko who you, you heard from earlier he's he has a dance background mm-hmm. and you know he's playing one of i believe the all-time great ballet dancers so that's an incredible bar you have to set yourself so that that it, it's, it's certainly impressive i don't know that that's it necessarily did anything different to any sort of dance movie or sports movie or anything where you that feels slightly well tread as a, as a sort of path the bit that worked for me the most is the sort of last half an hour where he makes the decision to defect to the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this fantastically well shot, really tense sequence where he has to basically surrender himself to, to French police. Um, and that is incredible. There, there's some real tension there. It's thrilling. It's exciting. It feels really urgent and important. And it really throws into, um, into vision this whole idea of what it's like to live under such an oppressive regime. Everything else in the movie... I'm not sure worked quite as well for me. There's some really strong performances. Ray Fiennes himself shows up as uh, his ballet teacher in a sort of supporting role, and he's very good and, mm. uh, you know, as you'd expect from Ray Fiennes, very restrained, very understated. But I think that's the film in in microcosm. Really, it is kind of understated. It's very classically directed, and I wonder if it needed something a bit more. I, I wonder if maybe it's just it was trapped in the real life story and there's only so many ways you can tell that story Mm. but you know it's 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 we gave it three three stars and that is a recommendation and oleg oleg's very good oleg's translator uh also good (laughs) also good i mean he speaks english for a lot of the film so imagine nick's surprise (laughs) (laughs) okay three stars then for the white crow and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by Kevin Bloody Costner, star of the new Netflix film The Highwaymen, and Tim Bloody Burton, director of Dumbo. Very, very exciting indeed. Until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye from James Dyer. Goodbye. It is goodbye from a man who has to run to do an interview in about three minutes, John Nugent. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to watch Psycho, a movie about psychopathy, <laughs> and splice Cary Grant into the shower scene. Don't judge me. It's not weird. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye.